Please remain standing for our sermon text, Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you did not desire sacrifice, or I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise." Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would be present by your spirit with us and within us to show us more of your kindness, your loving kindness and your goodness towards us in your son Jesus, that we might understand your mercy, that we might repent and turn to you all the more. And so be present with us as we consider your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. As there is no sin so small but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. So says the Westminster Confession of Faith, a statement of faith from the 17th century. And that statement that it makes there is actually a very hope-filled statement. It's saying something that's demonstrated in the psalm that I just read and and the backstory uh, that occasioned the psalm, it's saying that no matter how much you've wrecked your life, no matter how much you've burned everything to the ground, it can come out all right in the end, ultimately on the last day, on the final day. And I'm sure that there are some people in the room here today who feel like you have wrecked everything. Or that you know people who have wrecked absolutely everything and burned their life to the ground with sin. 
But you see how at the top of the psalm that we just read today in your Bibles, um, they all have a superscription to the chief musician, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Well, many of the psalms have superscriptions and they tell the situation uh, in which the psalm was written. And we got a little bit of that story in our Old Testament lesson today. But you might remember the beginning of the story, how David was a man uh, who burned his life to the ground with sin, in a sense. He was king in Israel, and the army had gone out to war. But David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And one day David was walking on the roof of his palace, and as he looked out, he saw a woman at her house, Bathsheba. And he inquired and said, who is who is this woman? And the people in his court said, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of his best soldiers, people that David, uh, in effect, owed his life to, who had saved David's life many times, had fought his battles and won them, who had brought David to prominence. And this woman that he saw, Bathsheba, was Uriah's wife. And so he calls for Bathsheba and takes her and commits adultery with her. And she sends word back to David and tells him, I'm pregnant. And so now David has a choice of what to do. And instead of confessing his sin, instead of putting things right, David decides to try to cover it up. And he sends to Joab, the commander of the army, and he says, what the Old Testament text that we read today, put your eye in the hardest part of the fighting, and when the fighting is hard, pull back from him so that he dies. He commits murder. And not only... Uriah dies in the fighting, but other men as well. And life moves on for David until, as we read in the superscription there, Nathan the prophet comes to him and preaches probably one of the best you know, sermons in the history of the world. He says, David, there was a man who was rich and had lots of flocks of sheep. And he had a visitor come to him one day, but instead of taking one of his sheep to entertain his guest. He went to his neighbor who was poor and only had one sheep, this one sheep, this one lamb that he cared about. And he took that lamb and he slaughtered it. And he fed it to his guest. What do you think should happen to that man? And David gets angry. He explodes with anger. Who is, who is this? Who would do such a thing? This man deserves to die. And then, of course, the great line in the sermon, you are the man, David. And David is smitten. David is cut to the heart. And David begins to repent. He's betrayed his friends. He's committed adultery. He's committed murder. He has no more moral authority. How can anyone in the government or the army ever trust him or follow him again? He's ruined everything. And yet by the end of this psalm, if you look near the end of this psalm, he's singing. He's bold. He's joyful. My tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. How did he get there? How did he do that? Repentance. Right? Some of you, unlike David, you haven't burned your life down. You haven't wrecked everything, but this psalm is still for you. Remember that first statement that I just, that I read. There is no sin so small, but that it deserves damnation. Even a very small hole on a boat, given enough time, will sink it. Without the pumps of repentance, 
constantly running, we will all go down eventually. David's sin with Bathsheba was not his first sin. Some of us see our flaws and sins, and we want to change, and we want to repent. We want things to be different, and yet it never seems to stick. Right? We try to change. We fix a few things in our lives, and a month later, a week later, you know, a year later, we're right back to where we were. Why? Because we're not really repenting. Most of our efforts at change are like just pulling the leaves off of the weeds. But real repentance gets down at the root. So repentance is something that all of us need. And this text here is one of the classic texts in the Bible on repentance, how to do it. All right, this is what we're going to see as we walk through it. We're going to see what you need to repent. We're going to see basically the prerequisites. We're going to see how to do it, how to repent, and the results of repentance. For those of you who want the outline, like the outline, this is it. What you need to repent, how to repent, and the results of repentance. So let's look through this text because it's something we all need. First, what you need in order to repent. David says that you have to have an inward sense be utterly convinced of two things in order to repent. The first one is an apprehension of God's mercy and love. An apprehension of God's mercy and love. Look at verses 1 and 2. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. You see, the foundation of everything in this psalm, the bedrock of David's repentance is the conviction of God's loving disposition toward him. We talked about that in Sunday school today. How can you be assured? How can you be assured enough to come to God? You have to be convinced of his loving disposition toward you. David's making an appeal for mercy based on God's character, not his own, not David's own, not anything in himself. Have mercy on me, O Lord, because I know. That's not what he says. Have mercy on me, O Lord, because you, because of your loving kindness, which is the New King James uh, version of trying to get at the Hebrew word hesed. You've heard me talk about this word from time to time, hesed. Some translations say faithful love. Others say steadfast love or covenant love. It's the word for God's love by oath. His commitment to love. And David's probably thinking of the way God exercised this kind of love to forgive the children of Israel for worshiping the golden calf. Right? You remember, as they're on their way to the promised land, we have this story in Exodus 32 where Moses goes onto the mountain to receive revelation from God. And while he's there, the children of Israel create the golden calf and begin to worship the golden calf rather than the God who brought them out of Egypt. And as Moses pleads with God on behalf of the children of Israel, this is what he says in Exodus 32. He says to God, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself. You made an oath, in other words, and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all this land I promised, and they will inherit, inherit it forever. So the Lord relented, concerning the disaster he said he would bring on his people. Exodus 32, 13 through 14. David knows that God has bound himself to be merciful to his people, even in the face of the worst 
kinds of provocations, even in the face of rank idolatry. So he says, have mercy on me according to your covenant love, your, your oath that you've made. And he says, according to your tender mercies. Why would God make such an oath to his people? Because it flows right out of who he is. Just two, late, two chapters later in Exodus, when Moses is on the mountain and God reveals himself, his essence, his character, his name, his nature to Moses, this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Right? Why does God make an oath to forgive you for all of your sins? One reason is it beca- it's, it's his nature to do so. He's gracious, merciful, long-suffering, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin in who he is. When most of us realize that we're sinning and something's wrong, when changes need to be made, okay, we motivate ourselves to repentance by calling to mind God's holiness, his justice. If I don't repent, if I don't change, if I don't get this fixed, he's going to smite me. Yeah? Now the truth is, there's truth in that. God is far holier, far more terrible than we can possibly imagine. But as terrible and wrathful as he is against sin, so merciful is his loving kindness towards those who repent and come to him through Christ. As God was for David, so he is for you. That means in order to repent well, you have to have your heart soaked in the assurance of God's loving disposition toward you. And this is where I want to encourage, encourage you. Take up the Bible. Go to Exodus 34. Go to any part of the scriptures you can that reveal God's loving nature to you. Where he shows himself to be loving and kind. Go, go look at the acts and the ministry of Christ while he was here on earth. How kind he was in welcoming sinners. How he healed the sick and gave sight to the blind. How he was meek and mild. Or you can read other books outside of the Bible as well that will encourage your heart in the knowledge of God and his love for you. I mean, recently I found some uh, Puritan authors to be incredibly helpful. Um, I was just talking this week with one of you about um, a series of sermons by Richard Sibbs, a Puritan author. Um, you could go get The Bruised Reed or, or Thomas Watson, uh, The Heart of God in Christ. Okay, go find those authors that will convince you and show you that God loves you. You have to have that in order to repent. David needed that in order to see the second thing that you have to have in order to repent. The first is a, is a bedrock assurance of God's loving disposition. The second is an apprehension of your sinfulness. You have to have an apprehension of God's love for you, but you have to have an apprehension of your sinfulness in verse 3 and 4. He says, you've got to see your sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All right, you notice he says, you've got to see your sin, but you have to see your sin the way that God does. Evil in your sight. Not evil in the sight of my culture, or evil in the sight of my friends, but evil in your sight, O oh Lord. You can't repent of sin unless you see it. 
But you've got to calibrate your conscience with the scriptures. Otherwise, how do you know what to repent of? Right? It's like, it's like zeroing out uh, your kitchen scale. Okay, if the scale's off, whatever you're trying to make when you're weighing out your ingredients, uh, it's not going to work well. Or it's going to be just like slightly off. And if, it's, if your scale is really out of whack, then the recipe won't come out at all. Right? Um, I don't know if you guys have kitchen scales that you zero out or bathroom scales that you still have to zero out. Uh, one time, I went over to a friend's house, and I saw their scale in the bathroom there. I was like, oh, I'm going to step on the scale and see how much it weighs. And I was surprised to find I had lost 15 pounds that day. <laughs> okay? It was out of whack. How are you going to weigh your thoughts and your emotions, your actions, unless your conscience is calibrated? You want your conscience informed by the word of God so that it judges well. A regular diet of scriptures will strengthen a weak conscience and restrain an overactive one. Recently, I was talking with a young man, and he was saying that he was uh, racked with guilt. And as we went through the conversation, I found that he was that way because he said that he was not successful in his vocation as he thought that he should be at this point in his life. And so that's interesting, and as a pastor, you know, you're wanting to kind of probe, and well, what is it? Is he, you know, are you, are you being lazy? Are you being irresponsible? And as we talked about different areas of his life, everything was fine. He wasn't being lazy. He wasn't being irresponsible. And yet, he was racked with guilt over his vocation because he had set up these standards in his mind. At this point in my life, I should have achieved this. At this point in my life, I should have achieved that. Oh, my parents really wanted me to do this, but I didn't quite make it. Right? His conscience was not normed by the scriptures. What he was, what he was, it's okay to be disappointed if you haven't achieved your goals, but he was guilty. Right? But if your conscience isn't normed by the scriptures, how do you know what to be guilty about? Scriptures will restrain the overactive conscience and call to life the underactive one. You need to see your sin, David says, but you need to see it the way that God does. You also have to confess your sins. And we have all sorts of ways of not taking responsibility for our sins, don't we? We can blame others. We do this often. God comes to Adam in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, and Adam says, Eve gave me the fruit. And Eve says, the serpent tempted me. Right? He started it. She provoked me, right? We can blame other people, or we can downplay it. What does David say after Uriah's death? David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. 2 Samuel eleven twenty five. Look, this is warfare, Joab. People die. Uriah could have died at any point. He could have died the next day in the battle. This is what happens in war. Don't let it bother you. We say the same sorts of things. It's harmless. It's just flirting. It's not adultery. It's not being unfaithful. We can downplay it. Or we can cover it up. David tried to. Other sins like murder, silence, secrecy. Okay? No, Mom, I have no idea how the mess got there. I'm just as shocked as you are to see it. We should investigate this. Nobody knows. Nobody's going to know. Okay, we cover it up. 
Isn't that what David's been doing to this point? Avoiding responsibility, covering it up, not being responsible to go out with the army, not taking responsibility for committing adultery with Bathsheba, not taking responsibility for Uriah's murder, but see what he does in verse 4. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You've got to confess your sins with no excuses. Lord, that was sin according to your word. It was wrong, and you are right. You have to see your sins, confess your sins. You have to mourn your sins. Verse 4, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's kind of a puzzling statement at first, isn't it? Especially when we know the backstory that we read in 2 Samuel 11. I mean, what about Uriah? Did he not sin against Uriah? He had Uriah murdered. Did he not sin against and with Bathsheba in committing adultery? What about the other people in the army that died as a result of that military operation? What about the country whose trust he's betrayed? While it's true that all of our sin is done before God and primarily against God, what David's doing by doubling and intensifying that name, you, you only, is he's using a Hebrew way of expressing grief and affection. It's grief and affection. Think about how David responds after his son Absalom dies. Absalom, Absalom, my son. Or the way that Jesus talks to Martha. Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. Affection and grief. You, you only is not a precise theological statement, but he's outpouring his heart with the grief of sinning against God and his affection for God. But notice what causes David to grieve his sin is not the severe consequences, even though there are plenty, both out in the world and in his life. Okay, In David's life, his sons are going to rebel against him. He's not going to have peace in his house. Other of his children are going to die. But it's not the consequences of his sin that cause him to grieve, but the gracious, loving character of the one that he sinned against. Against you, he says, the merciful one, the faithful one, the one that's loved me all of my life. Remember, the whole psalm is based on God's loving kindness, God's wonderful disposition, forgiving disposition towards David. You can't really mourn your sin if you see it only as the breaking of God's rules and not the breaking of his heart. In 2 Samuel, David's only question was, in effect, how do I cover this up? How do I get away with it? But you see what he's saying now is, how could I have done this against you? You see the change. We often can't repent deeply because we don't mourn our sin, and we often cannot mourn our sin because we don't recognize it as an ugly rejection of the one who is most lovely, most loving, most forgiving, most merciful, and most holy. You see what David's saying there? I never could have committed physical adultery unless I first committed spiritual adultery. I could have never sought fulfillment in Bathsheba unless I'd first and rejected and spurned your love. Seeing your sin for what it is, a rejection of God, is how we move from hating our sin for its effects in our lives to hating our sin for what it is. Hating our sin for its own sake. 
Right? I couldn't be so judgmental and critical without slapping the offer of Christ's righteousness right out of God's outstretched hand to me. I could never complain except while sitting on a pile of tokens of God's love and affection and favor. The same is for all of our sins. We cannot commit the ones that we noticed with our eyes unless we first commit much deeper sins against God in our heart. When you see your sin, you confess it, you mourn it, and then verses 5 and 6 says you have to acknowledge the source of your sins. Behold, he says, verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. We sin, in other words, because we are bent that way. We sin because of the remnant of the nature that we inherited going all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Hey, you're ready for biblical repentance when you start to realize that the sin that so surprised you in the moment was not a freak event. Okay, the pressures and circumstances that we find ourselves in are the occasions of our sin, but they're not the cause of it. Okay, the financial hardship did not make you stingy. The annoying person did not make you impatient and angry, but those things do provide the opportunity for those things to come out of our heart. Okay, what I'm saying is you're not ready for biblical repentance until this sentence is completely purged from your heart and mind. Are you ready? You're not ready for biblical repentance unless this sentence is completely purged from your heart and mind. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. No, you've got to say right along with David, I can believe I did that. I am that way, Lord, at the root, at the heart. Now, you're ready for repentance. You see? Now, you're ready for repentance. So how do you do it? That's what he says in verses 7 through 11. Repentance is, in light of God's mercy, in light of his loveliness, in light of his promises, in light of your sin, repentance is to cast yourself on God for inward renewal based on the person and work of Christ. Cast yourself on God for inward renewal based on the person and work of Christ. You see how every verb in this section that I just referenced here, every verb is a request, it's a plea for God to act, right? Purge me, wash me, hide your face from my sin, blot out my iniquities, create in me, cast me not, restore to me, uphold me. All of them are actions that he's asking God to do. One of the fundamental problems with sin, remember, is that we're living without reference to God. We're living for our own desires and out of our own strength, right? So trying to fix it yourself is just another instance of doing that. Repentance means turning back to God, casting yourself on God. For what? For inward renewal. Okay? Just as, just as our sin involves far more than the external actions, repentance asks God for far more than forgiveness. It does ask for forgiveness. But real repentance is far more daring than that. In light of God's holy, loving disposition, in light of his omnipotent power, true repentance 
asks to be transformed by God into the kind of person who loves holiness and then acts on that love. In verses 7 and 8, David says this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What's he asking for? Purge me. Descend me. Cleanse me, O Lord. Sin is defiling, and he's asking to actually be cleansed. Or the image that he's drawing from is from the Levitical ceremony for the leper's cleansing. Right? When you were healed of leprosy, the priest would sprinkle you with sacrificial blood with a hyssop branch, and then you would wash your clothes and your body with water, and it ended with this pronouncement from the Lord. He shall be clean. Right? He shall be clean. Leviticus 14.9. Some of you here today feel dirty because of your sins. You have that inward sense of moral filth because you are dirty with sins. But the power of the gospel means that you can have, in truth, inwardly, by experience, what the Levitical ceremony only pictured. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. By turning to God at that deep level, you really can be made clean. See, as he says also in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. God delights in truth in the inward being, as he says in verse 6, and that's exactly where we're supposed to ask God to work, in our heart inwardly. Our hearts are the polluted fountain of our sins, and so we're, asked, we're to ask God for a new, clean one. Create, there in verse 10, is a very interesting word. It's a verb that in the whole Old Testament only applies to God. Only God creates in this way. It's the term uh, used in Genesis 1 when God makes everything out of nothing by speaking it into existence. What David is saying is, I know I'm dirty, and so I can't make myself clean. I know I'm the one that's broken, and so I can't fix it. I know that I'm sinful, so I can't provide the righteousness. You will have to ask. You will have to act, God. You will have to make me new. Right? Now you see why so many of our efforts at change fail, because repentance is first and primarily a matter of faith. It's casting yourself on God for spiritual transformation rather than working hard at moral reformation. And of course, moral change comes. And of course, fruit is produced. Of course, energy is expended after God works transformation within us. But how can he do that? Why can he do that? Well, more than one commentator I read, has pointed out that uh, structurally the request in verse 9 is the central request. And this is the whole point of the passage. The whole thing is arranged to point to verse 9. He says this, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Our sins are against God. And they would separate us from God, and so we need God to hide our face to take his presence, his regard from our sins 
rather than us. We need him to blot out or wipe away our sins so that he doesn't have to wipe us out. And David knew that God could do that. But friends, you know how God did that. Jesus took your sins on himself and went to the cross, and God hid his face from Jesus. On the cross, Jesus, who never once sinned and always had the face of God, always had a consciousness of his love and approval and acceptance, he lost his experience of it. From the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he experienced the wrath and rejection that you deserved, as God's wrath blotted out every single one of your iniquities. Colossians says he has forgiven you, having blotted out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Why would he do that? So you can have all the love and approval and affection that Jesus deserved because of his loving kindness, because of his tender mercies. Jesus will give you from the cross, all the satisfaction, contentment, or joy, truly, that you thought that sin would provide for you, just as surely as his blood washes away all the filth and guilt. In his wonderful book on repentance, entitled Repentance, Pastor John Miller says this, quote, do not attempt to confess and forsake your old ways apart from the love of God manifested in a crucified Lord. Instead, look to the risen Savior who intercedes at the Father's right hand for you. As the Spirit exposes the evils of your heart, observe the wounds in Christ's hands. They are the absolute unshakable promises of the Father guaranteeing full access to the crushed in spirit. Repentance means... For big sins and small sins, day in and day out, asking the Holy Spirit to convince you of God's love, show you how your heart is actually bent away from him in your sinful actions, and receiving at that level the forgiveness and purification that you need from Christ to be motivated and empowered to live the life that he calls us to, a life of love. And as you do that, day in and day out, for big sins and small ones, the effects of repentance are going to begin to show up in your life. All right, we'll talk about these quickly as we finish. And um, we'll talk about three because David has three and because preachers love threes. All right. <laughs> One effect is this. A new power in evangelism and discipleship. He says in verses 12 and 13, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. David Kidner in his classic commentary on the Psalms says this, quote, We may note the close connection between a joyous faith and an infectious one, between experiencing restoration and leading others to that knowledge. Okay, remember this. It's much easier to pull someone into repentance than it is to push them into it. It's much easier to pull someone into repentance than it is to push them into it. A person or people 
Look, if you're, if you're constantly experiencing the joy of salvation return to you through regular repentance, that is one of the most attractive forces for evangelism in the entire world. A community that is constantly rejoicing in the new forgiveness that they have in Christ daily is just incredibly powerful for bringing other people to Christ. People who are far from Jesus don't want to join a community or need a community of people who are just dead set on entering heaven, you know, with grim determination and working it up themselves. They instead need someone who can happily show them how to receive the mercy and grace that they themselves have found. And of course, the most natural way to do that is to constantly be receiving the mercy and grace from God yourself. And it's one of the best tools that you can have for discipleship. In discipleship, we're trying to help one another, to help our children, to help our community turn their hearts to God in every area of life. And there's no better way to do that than having lots and lots of stories and lots and lots of examples where you're saying, this is how I turned away from God. Here's all the negative effects that it was having. Here's how I realized what I was wanting instead of Jesus. Here's how he showed me the mercy that I have from the cross, and here's the difference and the power that it's made in my life. If you can just have stockpiles and stockpiles of those kinds of stories, then you can teach and model for other people how to do the same thing. In fact, Psalm 51 is itself David doing just that. He made sure that the superscription was included there, so we knew the circumstances, and then he walks us through how he repented down to the level of his heart. So one, a new power in evangelism and discipleship. The second is a new disposition characterized by joy, humility, and boldness. See, David's bold. Look at verse 15. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. He's bold, but he's humble. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. He's singing. He's joyful. Right? He, has, he is gripped the way that Isaac Watts puts it in his poem. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Right? It's humility, it's boldness, it's joy, it's the kind of disposition that integrity brings, repentance brings, the gospel brings. You know your sin, so your heart is broken and humble before God and other people, but you know your love, you're loved. And so you're joyful and you're bold, right? Your heart is broken and your heart is thrilled. You're singing about God's righteousness and you're the farthest thing from arrogant that there can be. All right, finally, there's a concern to put things right in verses 18 and 19. Remember, David is a king. Everyone under his care, everyone under his protection is affected by his sin, right? But you know what? Your sin affects everyone around you too. What David's doing in verse 18 is he's praying for God to bless and build up the capital city. He says this, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Right? He's asking God, he's praying to God to work through him, work in his own power, reverse the effects of his sin. Right? He's praying that true worship would happen because people are turning back to God. He's praying the negative effects of 
uh, running throughout the army, running throughout the civic life from his sin, that God would work to ameliorate those things. See, when you repent, at a deep level, when you've cast yourself on God for inward renewal, once you have that, it turns your attention outward, out towards the people who are being affected by the sins that you're committed. And all of a sudden, you'll be like David. You have a concern for them. You'll begin to pray for them. You'll begin to work for them. Friends, may God give us all grace to repent deeply. May he give us grace to be convinced of his gracious love and cats constantly cast ourselves on Christ, the inward renewal that we all need. Let's pray that he would do that now. Father, we pray that as a people, that you would make us deeply repentant, that you would give us such assurance of your love and affection in Christ that we would be courageous to look into the depths of our hearts with you and see that your mercy and your grace through the cross and resurrection can reach us at the very depths. May the cross become large in our eyes. God, may we have the humility and boldness that comes from a clean heart, from a conscience that's put right before you and before others. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us as examples of grace that others might know and worship your Son as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.